So we're in Acts 16 today. We're actually going to start in chapter 15, verse 36, but most of the time we'll be in chapter 16. If you have your Bible, turn to 15, verse 36. We're in this series about the Apostle Paul, as you've heard already. Uh, we're, We're looking at him as a world changer. And not that any of us are expected by God to live a life that is as as influential as Paul's, but that we all are serving the same Holy Spirit. And so we individually, but especially we collectively as a church body, we should be world changers. The, The community of Montgomery County should say, thank God for First Baptist Conroe. Even if they don't ever attend here, even if they don't believe in our God yet, they should be grateful that we exist because of the impact we make on our city, on our region, on the families of those we know. That's what a church is for. And last week, we, we looked at, at how uh, the, the early church struggled with what does the gospel really mean, and, and what does it mean for people of different ethnicities to worship together under one roof, and they averted a great crisis in chapter 15. Today, we're going to look at something that happened right after that, and I, I just need to start by saying, can you think back, some of you, those of you who are old enough to 9-11, September 11, 2001. Can you remember the days right after that and what it was like? Can you remember how the whole country seemed to come together like never before, at least never before in my lifetime? And just for a few months at least, we weren't Republicans and Democrats. We weren't black, white, brown, or yellow. We were just Americans. We were on the same side. And smarter people than I am have pointed out that here we are, less than 20 years later, and we're going through the the biggest world crisis that any of us has experienced since 9-11. And in this pandemic time, rather than coming together, we're coming apart. Rather than becoming one, rather than supporting each other, we're arguing, we're yelling at each other, we're hating each other, we're considering one another the enemy. You know, in a month, we'll have another presidential election, and, and I've lived through some of these And some of you have lived through more than I have and others of you less. But let me tell you, you can bet money on it. Every four years you hear the same thing. Oh my goodness, this is the most important presidential election in the history of our nation. Every four years you hear the same thing. But this one is different. And let me tell you how it's different. And this is just my observation, but I've heard others say it too. For the first time I've ever seen, both sides, both candidates seem to not really be running on ideas. Not really running on platforms. Not really running on, okay, here's what we plan to do. It's more a a campaign of desperation. It's more a campaign of, oh my goodness, we can't let the other guy win. Whatever happens, whatever it takes, let's not let the other guy win because if the other guy wins, we're lost. If the other guy wins, our country's finished. And there's this sense of absolute terror of the other side. Such is the divide between us. And no wonder, because I don't know if you're old enough to remember or if you even can remember, but when 9-11 happened, we were still pretty much watching the same news. These days, you don't watch the same news as your next door neighbor. Depending on your political persuasion, you might watch this news over here that, that reports news that, that involves things that concern you, whereas he's watching news that agrees with his particular political persuasion, and it, it highlights stories that he's concerned about. And then if you're on social media, it's even worse, because the algorithms of social media are set up to feed you the news that they think you want to hear. So if you're really, really concerned about rioting in cities across America, you keep getting stories on your social media feed about riots, and you click on them because that's what you're concerned about, which helps them sell ads, but also makes you more concerned because you think, oh my gosh, the whole country's burning down. But on the other hand, if you're concerned about police brutality, 
then you get lots of stories about that until it gets to the point where you think, oh man, every police officer in the world is out to get me. And so there's this divide in the fact that we don't even agree on the same facts. Those two people meet and, and they say, well, I'm worried about riots. And the other guy says, well, I'm worried about the police. And well, why? And so there's, there's no agreement there. And it's just getting worse. But there's hope. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only force in the world that can bring us together. And I know, I know some of you are probably sitting there saying, okay, Jeff, that's what I knew you were going to say. And some of you maybe who are watching online, maybe you're not even a believer and you're saying, boy, that is absolutely the party line. I, there's, you know, you've probably already stopped listening. But let me show you a story from the scriptures that shows how the gospel transcends racial boundaries, transcends political boundaries, transcends economic boundaries, and brings people together like nothing else in the world can. So in Acts 15, verse 36, it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they were separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So what happens here is you're seeing the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, and it's very different than the first. You remember in the first, Paul and Barnabas, these two good friends, go to cities in Asia Minor and Cyprus and plant the gospel, plant churches, and win souls. This time, Paul says, after they've been back home in their home base in Antioch for a while, he says, hey, let's go back and visit those churches we planted and see how they're doing and encourage them. But Barnabas has this young relative, this young cousin, or, or nephew named John Mark. And yes, that's probably the Mark who wrote the second gospel in the New Testament. And we didn't cover this in this series, but the first missionary journey they took, Mark went with them, but somewhere along the way, in fact, before they even got out of Cyprus, Mark came home. He left them behind. We don't know why. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he had a disagreement with Paul or, or some other reason. But Paul says, okay, we're going, but we're not taking Mark. And Barnabas goes, but I want him to come. He's my nephew. I, I want to give him another chance. And Paul says, no. And, and Luke here tells us that they had a sharp disagreement, which is the Greek word paroxysmos, which literally means a sudden outburst of emotion. So we're not picturing two guys who sit down and negotiate and say, okay, let's just agree to disagree. This, this is a picture of two men in each other's faces, yelling, angry, saying things they probably later regretted. And it's hard for us to believe, after all we've seen, these two go through together. And especially from Paul's point of view, after all Barnabas has done for him. But now they're split. Their partnership is done. We believe and we trust that they reconciled as friends, but they would never again travel together and spreading the gospel as a team. And I just have to say for a moment, y'all ought to know by now that I, I consider Paul a great hero, one of the greatest people who ever lived, and yet he's still a sinner, and this story is evidence of it. Because here's a man who wrote and spoke so eloquently about grace and forgiveness, and yet he couldn't forgive this young man for one mistake. 
So this mission team splits and Paul takes Silas, a guy who had recently come down from Jerusalem and, and, and was living there in Antioch with him. Paul and Silas go on the second missionary journey and at first things go really well. They go to all the churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted. The churches are doing well. They rejoice together. They pick up a couple of new people for their team. One of them, a young man named Timothy. Timothy is a, a citizen of Lystra, uh, the son of a Greek dad and a Hebrew mom. And he becomes like a, the son that Paul never had. And they pick up Luke as well. In Luke chapter 16, it's very interesting because when they get to a place called Troas, from then on, you start to see the pronoun we. First time that's been used in the whole book of Acts. And that tells us that suddenly now Luke is part of the team. He is now traveling with them because it says we went here and we did this. And so now the mission team has gone from two people to four. And then something weird happens. Okay, this part's not weird. Paul says... Okay, now that we've seen all the churches, let's finish the work. Let's go through the whole rest of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Let's spread the gospel to every city in this region. That's what you expect Paul to do, right? Here's what's unexpected. God tells him no. Every city that Paul and his friends visit in the entire region of Asia Minor, God says, nope, you can't preach here. Keep going. And this has to have been hard for Paul. Paul was a man of action. Remember in Acts 9, when he first became a believer, what did he do? He didn't go off to school to get trained. He immediately went to the synagogue and started arguing with his fellow Jews and trying to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. And now, and now when he wants to finish the work in Asia Minor, every city he gets to, God says no. He ends up having to walk for weeks, he and his three friends, and not tell anybody about Jesus, which had to have been difficult. And finally, they reach the coast, the, the shore of the Aegean Sea, and Paul has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a man from Macedonia who's saying, Paul, come on over here. We need the gospel where, where I am. And so when Paul wakes up the next morning, he and his three friends board a ship, and they sail across the Aegean, and they land in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was the largest city in all of Macedonia. It was a major cultural center, a true, a true Roman city. But when Paul and his friends got there, they found out something unusual. There's no synagogue in the city. And you know that Paul, you know by now, Paul's procedure is everywhere he goes, the first thing he does is he enters the synagogue, he reasons with his fellow Jews for as long as they'll have him, he wins as many converts as he can, talking about here's what Moses said, and here's who, how David prefigured, and here's Psalms 22, and here's Isaiah 53, and here's how we know that Jesus is Messiah. Well, he can't do that now. Because apparently in the whole city of Philippi, there's not 10 faithful Jewish men because that's what it took to form a synagogue. But they do hear that there's a prayer group that meets by the riverside. And so they go find this group and it turns out to be a group of women. And Paul begins to preach to them. And that's where we pick up the story with verse 14 of chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the first convert to Christianity on the continent of Europe was a woman named Lydia. Now, she was not a European. She was from the Middle East, which is where Thyatira is. She was also not Jewish. She was what Luke calls a, a God-worshipper which is a technical term for someone, a Gentile who believes in Yahweh, the God of Israel, but hasn't yet converted. 
And even more unusual, she was a single woman in a world where women were expected to be married and bear children, and she was a businesswoman. That was incredibly rare in the ancient world. She was successful. She was a seller of purple goods, which was a luxury item, so I'm sure she did quite well. And so immediately, Paul and Barnabas not only have their first convert, they've got someone who can help fund their ministry, they've got a house to stay in, a house for their their new church to meet in once the church gets established. So they keep on going to that riverside. They're going to fish that pond as long as it takes to win as many souls as they can. But every time they go to the the riverside, they have to go through the marketplace, the agora, because that's the route that it takes them. And in the marketplace, there's this young slave girl who sits at a booth telling fortunes. She's possessed of a demon. And this demon enables her to say to anyone who walks up to her everything they know about this person and and tell their fortune. And so through this young slave girl, her masters are making a lot of money, which is probably a really cushy way to make a living. And every time Paul and his team come through the marketplace, she stands up and follows them around, yelling at the top of her lungs the following, these men are servants of the Most High God and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, why would she do that? Well, remember the Gospels. Whenever Jesus encountered someone who was demon-possessed, how did that person respond? Every single time, they responded in fear and terror, screaming out, you're the Son of the Most High. Why have you come? Are you going to hurt me? Leave me alone. It's interesting. It's ironic. It's beautiful, really, that the first people, people, before any human beings acknowledged Jesus and recognized Him for who He was, the demons did it. And now that's what's happening here in this young slave girl. These men are servants of the Most High God. And that leads to one of the most ironic and unintentionally funny verses in the whole book of Acts. Verse 18 of chapter 16. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, don't you love how honest the Bible is? Paul doesn't heal this woman because he feels sorry for her, feels compassion. He doesn't heal her because he's trying to glorify God. He heals her because she's getting on his nerves. You can just see him walking through and he's like, okay, fine, get out of her. And out out the demon comes. We see the dark side of Paul here, right? And God's up there going, okay, I can can work with a cranky exorcist. It's all right. I I can do what I want. I can do whatever I want to do. And this woman is delivered. Hallelujah. The problem is her slave masters are upset. They've now lost their source of easy income. And they have Paul and Silas arrested. We don't know what happened to Timothy and Luke, how they escaped, but somehow they do. Paul and Silas are arrested and they are beaten with rods. Now you need to know this as an interesting side note. In the Israelite law, the law of Moses... It was legal to punish someone physically, to to lash them. But you had to use a leather lash, and you could only lash them 40 times at most. That That was God's way of saying, okay, let's preserve their dignity, their humanity. In the Gentile world, they didn't have those restrictions. They would beat you with a stick. And when they beat you with a stick, they could beat you as long as they wanted to. Essentially, just don't kill them. And so we can be sure... Paul and Silas were beaten until they could not stand. Beaten within an inch of their lives. 
And then they're dragged to the jail and they're handed over to the jailer. Now the jailer would have been most likely a a veteran of the Roman legions. That's the way it worked in Rome. That's how they rewarded people who were faithful and effective soldiers. They gave them a nice, easy living like being the, the keeper of the jail in Philippi. This man would have been someone who had dealt out death. He would have seen the worst of human cruelty on the battlefield. And so nothing jaded, nothing ever uh, surprised him, I'm sure. We can picture a man who, who takes one look at these guys who desperately need medical attention and doesn't even look them in the eye, drags them over to the corner where the wooden stocks are set, sets their feet in those stocks, locks them tight, and walks away. One of the things about prison in the ancient world Jail in the, in the ancient world was a holding center. That's where they held you until they executed you or set you free. And there was no provision for the prisoners. There were no prisoners' rights. And there wasn't a chaplain there. There wasn't a cafeteria. There wasn't a doctor. If you needed help, you better hope someone in town will come to you and bring you food or bring you clothing or bring you medical care. Otherwise, you were on your own. So I want you to imagine you're Paul right now. Imagine you're Paul and you've lost your best friend just a few weeks ago and it's your fault and you know it. You've wandered for weeks without getting to do the thing you love the most in the whole wide world. You've finally been sent to a city to preach and you get there and there's no synagogue. You go to the riverside, you, you, you preach and you win some souls, but meanwhile you're followed around every day by a crazy woman yelling her head off and now you've been beaten until you're almost dead and left in a cold cell to die. So what do you do? What do you do in that circumstance? Well, you sing, obviously. That's what Paul and Silas did. Verse 25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So not only did they sing, but they stayed. Think about that. Earthquake hits, very targeted earthquake, the kind of thing only God can do. No lives lost, only property damages to this jail cell. Somehow their bonds fall off their wrists and their stocks fall off their ankles and the doors swing wide and the walls crumble and they could easily walk out of there. They could walk right down to Lydia's house and get the best medical care money can buy. But they stay. Why? Well, because they knew. They knew that Roman law said that when you were entrusted with a prisoner, if you let that prisoner go, whatever his sentence was revolved onto you. And they knew that jailer was dead if they left. And you might say, well, why would they care? 
I mean, this was a guy who, first of all, was symbolic of an oppressive system that had done this to them. Second of all, had shown no compassion whatsoever, had just coldly locked them in stocks and walked away. Why should they do anything for him? Well, because they understood. When I hated Jesus Christ, he died for me. If I'd been there, I would have been one of the ones shaking my fist in his face. I would have been the one, one of the ones spitting on him. I would have been the ones driving the nails in his hands. After all, it's my sin that nailed him there. And yet, and yet, he died for me. How could I walk away from this, this one right here, no matter what he's done or not done? They stayed. They stayed with him. And it saved his life and his soul. By the way, side note, have you ever wondered why the other prisoners didn't leave? Paul says, we're all here. Why wouldn't they run away? Luke doesn't tell us. Here's my theory. My theory is that the men in that jail said to themselves, you know, if their God can give them songs in the middle of the night when their backs are broken and bleeding, and when, if their God can send an earthquake to bust them out of jail, I'm sticking with them. They sang and they stayed. And a church was born. I want you to think about this. If you've ever read the book of Philippians, years after this event, Paul is in jail again. He can't seem to keep out of that place. And he writes a letter to the church at Philippi. It's our modern day church of, uh, book of Philippians. It is the happiest book of the entire Bible. It, the word rejoice is all through it. It's one of my two or three favorite books of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever paid attention, but it, it's hard to be in a bad mood after reading Philippians. And I don't know if you asked the Apostle Paul, what's your favorite church? He wouldn't tell you. But if you put a gun to his head, he'd say, what's that? I don't know what a gun is. But okay. If you threatened his life, my theory is he'd say, yeah, I like the Philippians. And think about how that church started. Think about the first three members of the church at Philippians. There was Lydia. There was the jailer. And there was this slave girl. And you can't come up with three more different people on the face of the earth. First of all, ethnically, Lydia is from the Middle East. Uh, the slave girl is Greek. The jailer is most likely ethnically Roman. Economically, Lydia represents the upper class. The jailer represents a solid middle class, blue collar guy. And the slave girl is the lowest of the low in the Roman society. If these three people lived in Montgomery County today, I want you to think about this. Lydia would be uh, probably the owner of a high-end dress shop in the woodlands. The jailer would be a, a, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan who works as a police officer or a sheriff's deputy and patrols our streets every day. And, and the slave girl would be a, a meth-addicted prostitute who walks the streets of downtown Conroe every day right past us. And those three would never get together unless some kind of legal event forced them together. Unless, you know, the slave girl's boyfriend held up Lydia in her shop or something and the cop showed up to help because the, the, the dress designer is not going to invite the cop and the prostitute over to her house for wine and cheese before the opera. It's just not going to work that way. The cop's not going to say, hey, um, why don't you come over to my house for brisket before the football game? And the, the prostitute's not going to have a house to invite anyone to. And yet, these three people became the foundation of an amazing church. And that's the power of the gospel. The gospel is the only 
force in the world that can rescue a human soul. It's the only force in the world that can really change our hearts. And no matter how messed up you are, no matter how dirty you think your soul is, no matter how bad you've acted in the past, no matter how uh, lacking in potential you think you are today, or what the world thinks of you, the gospel says you are a beloved child of God bought with the blood of the most amazing man who ever lived who willingly gave himself to usher you in. That's the power of the gospel, and it can change you. It can give you abundant life. It can give you eternal life. It can give you forgiveness of sins forever. And it can make you a brand new person. But you know what else it can do on a collective level? It can bring people together across every possible boundary, black and white, Republican, Democrat, uh, nationalities. None of that matters in the gospel of Jesus Christ There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And there's nothing else in the world that can accomplish that. And I hope we never get over that. I hope the world looks at us someday and sees how how do these people love each other? Well, it's because of the gospel. How do these people get along the way they do? It's because of the gospel. So what do we do? We sing. We sing, not necessarily literally, although I hope you do sing when we worship together here in this worship service. If you need some inspiration, I challenge you to watch young Essie Brown whenever she sings. I was watching her this morning. She was singing her heart out. Tons of joy just coming from that little girl, and it brought me joy. And I think it's a great idea when you're going through dark times to just sing out loud. I don't care where you are, driving down the road, whatever, belt out. It is well with my soul, or yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. That's a great thing to do. But when I'm saying sing, I don't necessarily mean literally. What I'm saying is we need to express joy continually. You know that in Galatians 5, it lists the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the characteristics that should be present in us. In fact, are present in us if we're followers of Jesus. It's not something you have to muster up. It's not something you have to learn. It's in you if you're in Jesus Christ. You know what those qualities are? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The second one on the list is joy. Now, let's be honest. If you grew up in church or if you didn't, when you think of highly religious people, you probably don't think of joyful people. You think of sour-faced old women with their hair in a tight little bun or angry fat preachers with red faces who are mad at everybody, the whole wide world. But joy is a fruit of the Spirit. If you know an angry religious person, that's not the Holy Spirit you're seeing in them. Smile and the world smiles with you. Frown and the world thinks you're a Baptist. I mean, that's that's what we hear, right? But that's not the Holy Spirit of God. You should be joyful. And that doesn't mean you've got to pretend... Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. It is fine. It is good to grieve. It is good to be honest about your frustrations, your fears, and your pains. But through the midst of it, don't miss the opportunity to say, Lord, take away this pain as soon as possible. But in the meantime, don't let me miss the opportunity to experience the joy that only you can give me. To know that right now the joy I'm feeling is not because things are going well. It's because you're present in my life. And don't let me miss the opportunity to express that joy to others so they can see what it's like when a child of God suffers. So we sing and then we stay. When it would be easier for us to walk away from people that we find annoying, people who make our blood boil, people who have it in for us, 
we stick by. We stay with them. We show them love that no one else will. Because eventually, that person is going to go through a time of crisis. An earthquake is going to hit their lives. And if you're the one that's been faithful to always treat them with kindness, to always treat them in a way they don't treat you back, they're going to turn to you and say, what is it with you? What is the reason for the hope that you have? What must I do to be saved? We sing, we stay, and we pray. Verse 14, I'll remind you, says that when Paul was talking to that group of women at the riverside, Lydia, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. The Lord opened her heart to hear. And that's what we need to have happen to so many of our friends and neighbors. So let me ask you, who are you praying for that to happen to? Lord, open her heart. Open his heart that he would hear the gospel from me. Give me the words to say. Let your Holy Spirit show that joy through me. But give them an open heart to embrace the gospel so they might be saved too. Who are you praying for that, for that to happen to today?